Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark. Once again, joined by our panel of Wheel of Time newbies. Say hello, panel. Hey, all. Hey. Hello. hello, panel. Joining us today, we've got Greg. Howdy. Axel. Hello. DW's with us. Felicitous greetings. Samaria. Back to back. And David. Boldly go. Siobhan, unable to join us for this episode, but hopefully she'll be back next week for next week's episode. Uh, so this episode, we're going to be talking about episode five, Blood Calls Blood. Uh, this was a, a pretty big, deep, heavy episode, if, if oh, I yeah. do say so. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what were just initial impressions? What did you guys think? All the feels. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it ran the gamut. It was, you know, chasing and jumping and running and dying and burying and everything. Oh. I had to sit down for a moment, several moments. Luckily, I was laying down at the time. Yeah, I, I ended up uh, uh, having to sit by myself for quite a while after the first time I watched it. And unfortunately for me, I, ha- I watch each of these episodes four times in preparation for this podcast. So I, I literally put myself through that four times. Don't know how you could do it. It, it, was, it was tricky. The sacrifices you made. So getting into our, our recap here, episode five, Blood Calls Blood. Uh, this one was written by Celine Song and directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. Um, our first scene, we start out, we're in a mountain forest at the Aes Sedai camp and uh, they're, they're burying the dead, the dead that we saw at the end of, of last episode with that big battle. Um, we see Stepan carrying Karini's body and he places her in a shallow grave and, and takes the ring from from her places it on a cord around his neck uh, we see land come up behind him and put a hand on his shoulder as he's older, overcome with grief and then we hear moraine say may the last embrace of the mother welcome you home as they zoom out on this circle of graves of, of all the people that died at the end of this last episode uh what what were we thinking watching this my immediate reaction, another circle my immediate reaction was it was a broken circle mm-hmm. it wasn't complete there was some space up, I, up at the top of the screen. I was thinking circles are sacred. And so, like, I think that's the first meaning I think I found about circles. We've seen it so many times um, mm-hmm. in the dancing and the design elements. And this time we see it in the way graves are arranged. And I don't know if that's like all the time. Like, do they do that in all cemeteries? Or um, is it in just this case because it was a battle? Um, but for whatever, whatever reason, Circles um, are almost holy, I think, in this universe. Yeah, I can see that, definitely. Yeah, the other thing I noticed was that they were not just burying the Aes Sedai side of the battle. They made a big point of showing us them burying the king as well. I mean, one would have to say that, you know, even if he was the opponent in battle, he was still a king of a sovereign nation. One should probably show him some respect in burial. Oh, certainly. Though a shallow grave is not necessarily a huge amount of respect. <laughs> but if you notice, <laughs> they put everyone in a shallow grave. I did notice that, and they didn't seem, to, just the cloth, they didn't seem to be ready to put dirt over. There wasn't like a pile of dirt next to it. So I'm curious if all cemeteries, you just, a cloth, and we're done. Okay, let's walk away. Returned to the animals. So the, the whole thing about us having deep graves today is a res- the product of the Great Plague in the 17th century. 
So before then, Graves would be pretty shallow because as long as um, Carrion couldn't get to it easily, that was good enough. So this is much closer to that. Well, and it states later in the episode when they're talking about the way of the leaf, about the leaf getting ground into the dirt. And I wonder if that kind of falls into the mythology of these people are being returned to the greater mass of the universe so that they can be re-spit out by the wheel. Also an interesting thought. Um, some info I can give you as a background here, that, that benediction that Maureen gave, the may the last embrace of the mother welcome you home. Um, that is a, a traditional death rite given to people of the borderlands in the books. Um, I'm not going to necessarily tell you what the borderlands are, because I think that's going to be a surprise in, in the show, but uh, I can tell you Lan is from the borderlands. So this is a burial burial ritual that is from the same area that land is from land is from. Um, so then it might be taken that Maureen, um, had pulled some traditions from land. Um, I'm, I'm not thinking necessarily that I'm wondering if they might have just adopted it for the show to be everyone's burial ritual. Um, but that struck me right away in that episode was either Karini was, borderlander but then i realized that the king of gaelden is not a borderlander but they still buried it in the borderland style so i think that they might be just adopting that style for all cultures in in the show Hmm. Hmm. Um, so the observation i made about it not, not seeming like it was a complete circle does that have any uh relevance or is that just something that i put in there you know or it's just like a way to get into the circle for um, the living I mean, I, I kind of looked at it as a way to get into the circle. Um, if you're looking for a definitive answer, I don't have it. This isn't something that, that's from the books. This is a, a, a design decision made by the, the television production team. So You mean he didn't spend eight pages describing the burial site? <laughs> uh, he did not, unfortunately. Fair enough, fair enough. I also noticed that the Aes Sedai were the only ones in the center of the circle when they panned out. So I wondered if that was meaningful or not, but... Everybody else was on the outer edges and they were kind of spaced evenly, almost like there was a significance to the Aes Sedai being the center of the circle and everybody else being the outside spokes. Again, a very, very interesting observation. I, I hadn't even noticed that myself. So. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. tell who was where, but I, I thought that something like that was, was the case, having the, the two concentric circles and i noticed it the first time and then i had to pause it to go back and verify that it was just the sisters in the center and that is the case i wonder if like their warder would be the next spoke out if they had that happen yeah and i didn't think there was any servants there when they panned out because there was a bunch of servants with them in that caravan but i don't think there was any at that ceremony yeah might be that just uh, paying that many extras is, is too expensive for that scene. <laughs> Very possible. <laughs> well, I was uh, like noting that they weren't burying them and didn't have like a pile of dirt next to them to put over it. I was kind of expecting that candle to do something with the cloth. Like at a certain point it would burn down uh, and then you know, light the cloth or something. Exactly. That's I what I was, it and it didn't happen. So, but that was where I was kind of thinking. Could also have been just that the, um, 
the servants were packing up the camp in preparation for leaving. And then after the ceremony's done, then you're going to get a few of them come in and do and throw dirt on it and moving right along. But we're just seeing this from the perspective of the ruling class rather than the uh, than the workers. <laughs> so you're saying the working class servants are going to have to come in later and and finish filling in these graves? Yeah, yeah, they're going to have to do like, all the hard work, man. Out with the bodies, dig it deeper. In with yeah. the so so so. <laughs> You're saying the Aes Sedai servants need to form a union of some yeah. sort? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I guess they would they be the Aes Sedai Sedai? <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. The ASS union. <laughs> I can imagine them all being happy to be assmen. More ass people. All right. Moving on with our recap. Uh, we get to our opening credits. Did anybody notice anything that they want to discuss on the opening credits this time around, or are we finally kind of happy with them? Uh, pretty good. I paid attention to the uh, to the colors and, you know, what I thought was like a darker blue was actually definitely looked a lot more gray this time to me. And it did look like there was a brown. There are uh, seven there, I counted. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, green, gray, red, white, gold, blue, and brown. Everybody's Everybody's covered. All right. Uh, moving on, our first scene, uh, we just get a title card that says one month later. Yes, they acknowledge travel time. Yeah, that was my first response to that as well. I was just like, well, at least it's not Game of Thrones where they just go to the other side of the continent in the next episode. Right. I totally heard that in SpongeBob voice. One month later. <laughs> uh, so we're with the Aes Sedai camp that's still traveling. Uh, Leandrin's looking very pleased with herself. Uh Karini's horse has its boots backwards in the stirrups, and Loghain is looking completely empty and leashed. The backwards boots in the stirrups were that hit me. Yeah. That was that was wow. That's a that that's a great visual representation. Did the same thing when it hit the town. As soon as everybody you know in the, in, in the city saw it, yeah, they all gasped and oh no, so. It's 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 a great little symbolic. Uh, is that from the book, or is that something from somewhere in the real world? That lore? that is not from the book, but that is from the real world. Uh, in in the U.S. military, um, if somebody dies in battle and they are a colonel or above, I believe, if um, in a parade they will have their boots put backwards in an empty saddle. Um, it it's. Apparently a military tradition in the U.S. That's, that's also spread a little bit outside the military. Um, my spouse has said that she's seen it with, with other uh, uh, people who have passed doing the backward boot thing. So that, that it's an American tradition. It's a representation of the commander looking back at their troops one last time. There you go. Cool. Oh, interesting. And it took uh, the British guy living in Canada to point that out to us Americans. <laughs> <laughs> so we get our first shot of the White Tower uh, coming up over the trees there. Um, and Lan just says, it's a long time since we've been home. And Moraine says, do you, you still think of that as home? Home is this saddle, this cloak, and this brooding man at my side. Uh, I, I, I had to point that out little exchange out because it just once again shows how close these two characters really are. That was, that was a great line. That, that, I love that, yeah. That, that was a great representation of their relationship. Yeah, it also shows how far removed Moraine is from the politics of the white tower. It's not really her place. She has yeah, to be yeah. there cause she's Aes Sedai, but it's not her thing. 
Yeah, she looks up like that. That's home. That's not home. What are nah. you talking about? It's just where I keep that's my stuff. Wo- that's work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think this is why I think she's so patient with Nynaeve, actually, because Nynaeve is like very adamant. She's like, I'm not, you know, an I said I will never be an I said I. I may have something, you know, very important in common with them, but you know, I am not them. They are not me. And, you know, Moraine has just been, you know, with her every step of the way, like extremely patient, because honestly, I would have, I would have yelled at Nynaeve by now about that. Um, But now it's like, oh, okay, I think I know why, you know, Moraine, you know, is so taken with Nynaeve, even though Nynaeve clearly doesn't like her or trust her. It's like, oh, you know, I get it. I'm, I grew up with them. I don't trust me either. Yeah. (laughs) Like I, (laughs) right. Um, and speaking of Nynaeve, uh, Moraine brings up Nynaeve as the next topic of conversation. And uh, she's like, what, talking to Lan, saying, oh, so what's up with Nynaeve? And Lan's like, what, you think she talks to me? Moraine says, well, she spends every night at the Warder fires. Um, and Lan just says, well, she's worried about Steppen. And I think we're all worried about Steppen at this point. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, I had noticed when... Uh, Stephen first came out that he really had a, uh, a resemblance to Sean Bean, and I worried for him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never want to end up looking like Sean Bean. No, no that's not no. a good plan. Not a good plan to make it to the end of the episode. No, no, it's it, uh, it's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not a not a way forward in the career path. So Lan asks Moraine if he thinks that the others have made it there already. And Moraine's pretty much like, eh, I don't know. Who knows? They might be here. They might not. If they are, we'll find them. If not, you know, YOLO. And and just kind of seems to wave it all off like it's not a big deal. Um, and we move to uh, Rand and Matt, who are also on the road. Um, Matt's kind of stumbling along, looking like a used bar rag. And he's ends up snapping at some kids who are just running by him on, on the road and playing. Uh, kind of unusual behavior for Matt. We, we haven't seen him react to kids this way before. Right. Um, Not just to be with the kids, but in general, I, the note I made was, oh, the dickishness is back. Yeah. <laughs> they're still, they're back to biting at each other. Like we had an episode of them. Oh no, they're nicer now. And then, oh God, nope. It's back. Nope. It, well, it, well, they've it, been on the road for a month, so that yeah. I forgave. It was like, oh gosh, he's coming at the kid because one thing about him, he never, you know, abuses kids. Like kids yeah. are very off limits, and more than how he looks, more than how he's carrying himself. That I was like, something is extremely wrong right now. Yep. Well, and he looks yeah. sickly and pale too. Like, oh, I noticed yeah. it in the first episode that he looked ragged and kind of beaten down but in this episode he looked sick yeah he, he looks really drawn all sorts of pale one. and no energy anything like that yeah so so Rand says he's a little concerned about matt's actions matt just says he's tired from being on the road for a, this last month i mean i think i'd be tired from being on the road with any of you for a month as well <laughs> <laughs> come on i'm fucking delightful what are you talking about and uh, we see a mountain coming over, over the horizon. Rand says, that mountain, I think I've seen it before. And then uh, they come up over a ridge and we get a shot of Tarvalon for the first time. And uh, from everything I know about maps, they're approaching it from the wrong side. But that's that's not, <laughs> not here. <laughs> I'm not going to complain about that too much. But yes. 
Do we have a reason to think that Rand has been here before, or is it from dreams? I thought it was from dreams. There, yeah, there, there. That was there what was I picked. A, I, I, I cheated a little and looked at the uh, the X ray trivia. Thank you, Amazon Prime. Uh, and the the mountain is called Dragon Mount, which I'm sure Rourke can expand on. Uh, but yeah, I can definitely see a, a dream thing about that because of. Well, there's a reference to it in the animated series too that they specifically built Tarvalon in the shadows of the mountain so that they could watch over the Dark One. So I'm guessing that's that mountain is where he's kind of been imprisoned or where his forces are hiding or whatever the case may be. Oh, interesting thought. Um, I know, Greg, you're sitting there waiting for me to expound on, on Dragon Mount a bit. I, I, I don't think I'm going to. Um, I, 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 I get the, I really get the feeling that it, because they have not said anything about Dragon Mount as of yet, that they are planning one of these really cool cold, cold opens to the episodes to really inform us as to what Dragon Mount is. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to let the, the show do that. The in, secret keeper of, strikes again. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're so good at that. That means you're the worst ever. Okay. Uh, more or less. You know, we, we've, we've gotten a little bit of fan mail so far. And, and the biggest thing that I see people telling me is I have no idea how you don't say anything. And all I can say is I have no idea how I don't either. It, 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 sometimes it is so very hard. Well, it's hard for us for us to keep from the media too. So uh, after they approach the city from completely the wrong side of the river, uh, <laughs> they walk through the the gates of Tarvalon, and Rand just is kind of awestruck and says, "Blood and ashes." Did this stand out as odd to any of you in any way whatsoever? It just seemed like an expletive to me. Yeah, sort of the frack of this universe. Exactly. So I can tell you for the book readers, this was the point where they were like, he said the thing! He said the thing! <laughs> because in the books, there are no modern swears. They use book-specific swears that developed in this world, and that is one of them, Blood and Ashes. Uh, you know, there's Blood and Ashes, Blood and Bloody Ashes, Flaming... Uh, you know, light blinded idiot, things like that. A lot of their stuff has to do with with the light or flame or something of that sort or blood, bloody, whatever. So blood and bloody flaming ashes would be like, you know, motherfucker to these people. So that's, I just wanted to bring this out because a lot of the people who read the books were like really hoping that the book swears would stay true in the show. And we're, we're happy that they're giving us a few of them, but I, I would like to see some more. And I think that there's a, a character coming before the end of this season that will probably uh, introduce you all to some very interesting new swear words. So Excellent. Fabulous. I'm, I'm always looking to expand my vocabulary. I can't wait to integrate that into my vocabulary. I, I'm <laughs> especially interested to hear if they give him some of the modern swears as well, because that character will be really interesting. There have in been a few S-bombs already. So. There have, there have, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they work their way through the city, and uh, Rand says, Tom told me about an inn. Uh, let's go get cleaned and rested before we go try to to get into the White Tower. Um, and we hear some whistles from an alley as they're they're going into the inn. David, you have something to say. 
Yeah, I found some interesting things there at the beginning as they enter Tarvalon. The first is that mm-hmm. this is a really Middle Eastern architecture, which was kind of cool to see. Mm-hmm. It's not something you see pop up in, in Western media at all very often. Yeah. Um, but then also when uh, Matt asked for some food, he got it immediately oh, I, without question and it's you, like uh, oh. rand asked rand oh, sorry, asked for the food rand. and and i i actually went back to rewatch that because i was wondering about that and he actually does hand her a coin oh does he okay yeah so yeah, he I does actually too. pay for the food i i did make a double check on that to make <laughs> so sure. i was wondering he, like did, wow these are really enlightened people to be just be like handing over food to yeah, a no, no he he, he holds up a coin and says can i have one and then she hands him okay, the, okay the pie okay. and he takes yeah the coin. i missed yeah. that too and uh the other thing was that Oh wow! Rand suddenly trusts Tom, and now he's like listening to everything that he said. That uh, little conversation they had about Matt possibly being a channeler really had an effect on Rand and how much he trusted Tom. Very much so. And one one thing I do have to say about that also with the Tarvalon, the that it was this multiplane digital mat painting that just looked yeah. gorgeous. Uh, multiplane as when the perspective changed on the camera so more things were revealed and covered something i noticed about that because we see this we see something similar later where they they uh, at night where they did a panning shot Mm -hmm. and i don't think it's a multiplane matte painting i think that's an actual 3d rendering well a digital matte as i as i call it but it really had that Um, multiplane look on that first one and and the one thing i was thinking looking at those was if there is a 3d rendering of tarvalon out there and they are not releasing it to me so that i can walk through it with my my vr uh, vr headset then (laughs) like you know this is what i've been waiting my entire life to do is walk through this world in my vr headset so please make this happen i wonder print it as your as a bed yeah, <laughs> could be a model shot too. If um, I don't believe that that's a model shot, I believe that is a digital shot. But yeah. Um, but anyway, gorgeous. as as uh, Rand and Matt go into the inn, we hear some whistles from the alley across from the inn, and and see uh, an old friend over there. Did did you guys pick up on that? I did. I, I was like, oh, there he go, up to no yep. good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, so we get uh, inside the inn, uh, Rand complaining that a night there is more expensive than a month at the Wine Spring Inn. Um, Matt just next to himself saying, tell me it wasn't me. And Rand just being Rand, being the good friend, says he, you'd never hurt a little girl. It was definitely the fate. I know you. We've been friends forever. You would not do that. That was not you. I, I don't think it was him either, but the blackout aspect of what he was going through is kind of an interesting, that, that it, 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 I'm worried that it's a, a combination of the madness. And as somebody mentioned in, I think it was two podcasts ago about how the um, black that was coming out of him reminded them of everything we saw at the uh, Forbidden City. In Shadow mm-hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think that there's something definitely wrong with him i mean that's that's obvious but but specifically tied to his his uh attachment to the core to the source I mean, yeah it's, it's like of... it might it might have happened by it it could have happened by his hand but not by his heart it's kind yeah. of interesting that we're seeing a ptsd reaction to something that he doesn't remember having happened well i i think that the dagger still has uh because the dagger's from the city I think the fact that he's kept the dagger is keeping the poison to an extent. 
It could very well be. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much, I don't think, I don't read it so much as PTSD of something that he doesn't remember as much as something he could have done while he was in some sort of fugue state and, you know, doesn't remember if he had done it or not. He still got that doubt. Oh, interesting. It's like, it could have been me doing it, even though I wasn't guiding my hand. It could have been my hand. So then we jump to the warder's quarters where we've got Nynaeve Lan and Moraine. Um, and Moraine is saying, these are the warder's quarters. It's the safest place in the tower to hide from the sisters that we traveled with. Um, Sneaky I, reds. Yeah, I think we, we know she's exactly talking about the reds there. Um, and Nynaeve kind of turns to Moraine, pretty much like, I don't give a shit about your politics. I'm here for my people. And uh, Moraine says, well, the sisters here do care about their politics, and you are way out of your depth. Uh, to which point Nynaeve uh, kind of takes that as a challenge and you think um Maureen, Lan, and Nynaeve uh, then all exchange glances uh, I, I loved that little scene um, trying to read what each one was trying to convey with their glance with, uh, every time I watched through it I saw something a little different each time it was great um but Lan finally decides it's in his best interest to leave um and Moraine says, look, I'm here. I'm trying to protect you and I will bring you to your friends when I find them. You just need to stay here and be safe. What did we think about this scene? So much, so much, so much. Okay. <laughs> so my first thought about this, and it's not the second time I had, well, it's not, it wasn't the only time I had this thought. Um, I was like, I need someone of these five to be a Slytherin. By which I mean... <laughs> I I just I'm begging Nynaeve to consider even for five minutes like how the Aes Sedai could actually serve her purposes. Like she's so worried about the danger they they're um posing to her or even just might pose to her that she's forgetting that they can be useful to her. And so I just want to sit her down and, and just ask her, how can you use these people to get what you want? And what does that entail? And, you know, she's, you know, she's a healer and, you know, the best way to learn is to be taught by somebody who's smarter than you, who has knowledge that you don't possess. And regardless of how you feel about them, maybe, you know, it could help to just sit down, stay put, be a little quiet for a minute and figure out how to get what you want from these people. And, you know, Moraine makes that comment, you know, these women have spent decades perfecting their craft and learning how to put their best foot forward. And, you know, she's like, well, I'm powerful, too. And I'm like, yes, but you're also untrained. You're you are, you know, in a lot of ways also self-taught. And, you know, I told my girl, I was like, the weakest novice at this point in time in that tower is stronger than she is at this point. And, you know, Nynaeve, bless her, like, I'm like, well, I actually don't know why, but, you know, I can empathize, you know, she's so deep into protecting herself and hiding herself that she's actually in a lot of ways engaging in self-sabotage and, you know, keep your enemies close. Like if you decide these people are your enemies, that's fine. Um, I don't get it yet, but, you know, I, you know, that's fine, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Figure out how you can make this work for you. Yeah. Take those lemons, make some lemonade. Hey. Or just say, oh yeah, I like lemons. Give me some more. 
crash through a few walls. It's fine. More, more naive style. Yeah. yeah, well, you use enough lemons, you get enough acid, you could dissolve a body. This is handy. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I wanted to point out with Nynaeve, um, I was hoping somebody was going to catch on to this sooner, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just lead you there by the nose right now. Um, we've noticed the Aes Sedai all tend to wear clothing that matches their Aja, which mm-hmm. to some level tells us a little something. Yeah, about she always wears green. She was. And she's been in green. green. I did notice this a couple episodes. Yeah, she's, she's not just wearing green, though. What else? Notice her jacket is green, but her underskirt is yellow. Mm-hmm. Didn't catch that. So what does that tell us with what we know about the Ajas in a subtle way? Oh, she's an aggressive warrior. (laughs) (laughs) She'll heal you whether you like it or not. (laughs) I actually thought that was more related to wisdom. I thought that her her look was a wisdom thing because we haven't seen another wisdom to be able to compare her against. But I I I think it's fair to think that they're using the color palettes to also kind of tell some stories. Totally valid, and and I think that that would be a a a very simple story to tell with that color palette. Totally valid. Well, I can mm-hmm. say that during the funeral scene, I forgot for a second that that was her jacket that she'd been wearing this whole time. And I'm like, oh, she's wearing green now? What's with that? <laughs> oh, they were and really then, And it took me it. a second. Oh, wait, no, that's what she's been wearing this whole time. But I did notice that. And almost because the green is almost exactly the same as the green Aja coats that yeah. the other two were wearing. Yeah, very similar shade. Very much so. So uh, moving on with our, our recap, uh, we meet up again with the Tuath Juan. Uh, Perrin and, and Egwene are talking with Aram. Uh, Perrin and Aram are talking nonviolence again. Uh, Perrin thinks that letting their dogs eat meat is is uh, against the code. And Aram says, no, I mean, you know, dogs have to eat meat. So we, we just let them eat meat. Um, well, I just thought it was interesting to bring this up. At this point, because it's like, well, if Perrin is using his wolves to attack people with, which we kind of find out later that he is, that's kind of an interesting thought that he's complaining about them using dogs as a weapon or having them eat meat. And then later we have him doing exactly the exact same thing. Foreshadowing. <laughs> well, one one nice thing I had noticed there and then upon rewatch, I had noticed it with, uh, with Rand as well. Uh, with Perrin, they... It grew his hair out. You can see the yeah. passage of time, and you can really see it with Rand as well. It's, and and that was that was a cool little touch. And with Perrin's hair, I don't know if you noticed, but he was starting to kind of wear it in in the way of the Tuathuan, which is what DW yep, yep. was just I, about I to say. I did notice. That's what that. I was going to was... say. That's exactly what I was going to say. I totally noticed that he seemed to be getting almost the same hairstyle as Aram. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so at this point, uh, Egwene points out that the White Tower is just over those trees, and and it's it's. Very exciting. They're get, getting close to the White Tower. And then suddenly, no one expects the White Cloak in- Inquisition. <laughs> Fear, surprise, and Broadway haircuts. Yes. Uh, and food that hurts. So, well, they, this scene turns into the uh, every media version of a KKK anything. Yeah, more or less. Right. Uh, so Valda's up there talking with Isla, and, and he sees uh, Perrin and, and Egwene and remembers them because he very specifically said, I will remember it, your it, True. I still I applaud him um, for being able to say which that. Which was yeah. in the recap. Yeah. He's got a better memory than I do. Uh, so he, he wants wants them to bring them before him. And Isla is like, no, they're ours. You, can, you can't have 
our people. We're not just going to hand over our people. And, and Valda says, well, what are you going to do? And all the Tuathuan lock arms. And Perrin and Egwene make a run for Peaceful it. Peaceful resistance. And the Tuathuan, yes. Mm-hmm. And the, the mm-hmm. white cloaks end up doing what white cloaks do and, and start in on the beatdown. And yeah. Looked so much like a race riot, peaceful protest. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that hit way too close to reality. Yeah. 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 I was very quiet watching that. I, I couldn't react. I couldn't really say anything. It was just like, yep. I can't even mm. imagine. The wheel of time. This has happened before. This will happen yeah, again. More or less. Uh, so as I said, Perrin and Gwen and Aram uh, took off while, while they were, distracted uh but some white cloaks on horses still caught up to them and they knock aram out and and uh we don't know what happens to Perrin and and as they were running though there was something i noticed and it it could just Mm -hmm. be a detail for the the uh show to show that this is you know lands that are specifically been lived in but the rock faces yeah i noticed that i was like ooh. yeah it was it seemed like an odd detail to throw in in that moment of this shot that they're up front and everything else is going on beyond the rock faces. So um, I know that filming location is in, uh, I want to say Chechnya, um, and it's a national park. And when they announced that there was going to be filming there, like everybody who read the books was trying to figure out, well, what are they going to use these faces for? What is What part of the book is that going to be? And, and then, you know, I love the fact that it's not for anything special. It's just something on the side of the road, <laughs> you know? It's a broken world. Anything can come from anywhere that was before. That's exactly. true. That's true. That could have been an old, uh, I guess, facade, I guess yeah. you could say, for a uh, giant building that uh, just got blown across the yeah. way. Uh, so with continuing on, we flash over to the inn uh, where Rand is in the inn's library. And uh, he gets surprised by uh, by Loyal. Uh, what, what did we... Th- think about this what did loyal just walking in made me happy because i thought of you actually <laughs> <laughs> i um i said oh my gosh that's right <laughs> it's too bad shaban's not on this episode because i thought of her i'm like yes another creature yes, for shaban very much i so. actually <laughs> found it interesting because i think they pronounced the name loyal but they did pronounce it loyal and no, no. i am that this is one pronunciation i am not changing on i'm sorry well that's the thing that's absolutely the thing i picked up on is i made the connection to loyal like it's like oh that's a character trait that name that name's gonna be yes it's Mm -hmm. some writers write characters where they name them a little too on the nose and i feel like this one was yeah oh yeah Mm -hmm. his name's loyal but it's loyal well it's interesting (laughs) that they they go that direction, but then you change ogre to ogier. Yeah. Yes. Very specific about correcting him later. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not an ogre. I'm an ogier. <laughs> ogier. <laughs> I'm a fancy ogier. And ogiers were mentioned in the um, in the mini-sode episode four. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been wondering if they would be showing up. Yes. And what they were, so that was nice to get. Yeah. Fruit. Basically another... A lot of the minisodes seem to be foreshadowing of the following episode. Very much yeah. so. Um, and I, I had thought about giving you guys a little background on Ogier at this point, And I realized that 
it seems like just about every time I give you some background on something, they give us that same background in the next episode. So I'm going to wait off until we see if, <laughs> if Loyal... Uh... You see, that I'm fine yeah. with. That I'm fine yeah. with. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but uh, so... Because there's a character to develop. It's not just a place yes. that's there. There's a character. I'm good with that. So uh, Loyal, when he, you know Rand pulls a sword out, because Rand obviously at this point, I'm thinking, is thinking he's a Trolloc because... He's very large and very animalistic, and this is the only thing that Rand's seen that fits that description. And uh, Loyal just kind of looks at his sword and just kind of laughs it off and just says, oh, yes, when I first came here, people chased me through the streets and waved knives at me, I'm referring to the swords as knives. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I was a bit perturbed. It, it almost made me a little cross. It's like I was a little upset. Yeah. I hurt my feelings a tiny bit. Um, so, I mean, th th that kind of tells you Loyal's, Loyal's personality a little bit. He's, he's very calm, very chill, very down to earth. Mm -hmm. Very great guy. Um, and but very sure of himself. Very sure. That too. Yes. That too. So uh, he, he looks at Rand and he says, it's very nice to meet an Aielman. How's it, how's it being an Aielman? And Rand's like, I'm not an Aielman. I'm from the Two Rivers. And he's like, oh, an Aielman from the Two Rivers. And, Rand says, no, just from the two rivers. And Loyal's like, oh, an Aielman who says he's not an Aielman from the two rivers. <laughs> I love this exchange, especially yeah. since I've kind of been waiting since Tom brought up the Aielman to find, oh, we're going to figure out somewhere that Rand has a connection to that. Because he says very specifically that that hair only comes from an Aielman. And we've already got this main character that is very clearly a redhead. That's going to come up. Which which is exactly the same thing that Loyal brought up was the color of Rand's hair was what made him think he would be an Ioman. We don't know exactly who Rand's mom is yet, do we? No, no. Okay, because I wrote that down in my notes. Rand, who's your mom? Um, I did explain that in the first episode when they were hanging the lantern. Um, Rand's mother's name was Kari Althor. Uh, she died when he was young. He was probably about four or five if i'm remembering correctly he has some memories of her she died of an illness when he was young that that's kari althor so i kind of get the impression that it comes more from his dad's side and that that's kind of the the history in the past that his dad's trying to hide oh interesting because obviously we found out by that town they came to that it's not really something that's accepted it's not really something that's understood and that people from that land kind of get shunned or chased out or even shot up with arrows yeah. and hung in the courtyard so yeah this episode is brought to you by four cats boutique on etsy that's the number four and cats with a k katie and jordan have some awesome art they would love for you all to check out they have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like The Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. Uh, so Loyal turns to discussing uh, the book that Rand was holding, which is The Travels of Jane's Farstrider, which Rand says was Egwene's favorite book. Um, he, he said she was always reading it, and that's why he picked that book up. Um, any thoughts at this point? I'm interested to see what that book's about. You know, it's 
your your favorite book can tell you something about you know you know about a person. So you know you know a certain type of person if their if their favorite book is a catcher in the rye, you know what kind of person they are. If their favorite book is the Fountainhead, you know what kind of person they are. You know that sort of thing. So I'm wondering if that's got something to do with uh, with that. Also, it's a sizable book, and I wouldn't imagine um, that people from Two Rivers have an extensive library. So it's an interesting thing to see where she maybe got a hold so, of this book. So that's actually some info that I wanted to bring up because I knew that, that somebody was going to wonder about the books. Um, books actually are very common in this world. Literacy, literacy okay, is okay. very high. And the reason is one of the very few pieces of technology that survived the breaking of the world was the printing press. Gutenberg for the win. So, yes, very much so. So literacy is very high in this world. Books are an available commodity and they're something that most peddlers and that will carry with them at all times. So the travels of Jane Farstrider is actually like, like it's like a Stephen King book in our world. Like it it is, everybody knows (laughs) it. Everybody's read it. Yeah. It's just sitting on a shelf place. Well, you know, it's it's also kind of interesting that a writer would write into his world creation that books were valuable. Yeah. <laughs> Save your own career. I love it. I love yes. it. And the travels of Jane Farstrider in the book, um, it's it's kind of like uh, almost a Gulliver's Travels or something like that. You know, the, this person who travels to all these other lands that outside of the area that we see in in the books. So this is kind of how he explains more of the world than you're actually able to see oh, is nice. through the writings of Jane Farstrider. So it's nice that they they made a nod to that and brought it into the show. Okay. So, you know, even though they're from this provincial little area, you know, you can still find out about the outside world. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so Rand is, is telling Loyal, uh, yeah, I came here because uh, the girl that, that loved that book, she was coming to go to the tower. And uh, at that moment, there's some excitement outside. And Rand, Rand says, what's up? And Loyal says, well, that must be the procession for the false dragon. Uh, David, go ahead. Yeah, I found it interesting that we get this kind of procession that was very a sort of medieval style thing, at least in media. And uh, Axel can uh, correct me on that if he needs to. But it's not very enlightened. And we kind of see the city is high and enlightened, but then we have this really kind of medieval practice of driving the shameful through the, the procession and holding the ice die above everything else. And it, I, it seemed a little strange to me. I was surprised about that too. I, um, one, one, one thought was, you know, Oh guys, it's not his fault. He's, you know, he's gone crazy, but that's not because he wanted to go crazy. He couldn't help it. So maybe we shouldn't shame him like that. Um, but also like same, I just didn't expect that from this particular society. Like, I just didn't think that'd be something they would believe is productive or useful or, you know, enlightened. Like, I think I've, I've gotten this impression that they really pride themselves on being forward thinkers, if not necessarily progressive. Um, and that was just very, very backwards to me yeah i I can understand that you know they're they're still you know in the quote-unquote enlightened society there's still some barbaric things that are done 
you know, that's some sort of holdover, it seems like. And I don't think this is something that they do with just anyone. I think this is really specifically something they do with men who can channel because they need, I think the Aes Sedai are really trying to show people, look, we are taking care of you. We were getting rid of these men who can channel. Here he is completely meek and subservient. You know, I think this is a, a way of for, for the Aes Sedai to really enforce why they're important. Oh, political posturing. Very yes. much so, yeah. Yes, but also, you know, to show, hey, you know, these guys are dangerous. You know, we, we know that these male magic users can be dangerous, so we're showing we're showing you that they can't, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the sort of the equivalent of, you know, punching Nazis kind of yeah. thing. So uh, Rand runs out of the library uh, to go see this this procession that we've been talking about, and he sees Matt up on the railing of the of the inn, so he goes up to join him. And we hear some chuckles from the shadows across the street. Uh, did we notice who was there again? Pardon Mm-hmm. I'm starting to he's think, uh, yeah, I'm starting to think he's he's uh, the Waldo of this world. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost wanting to go back through every scene and just see if I can find him somewhere because he seems to be hiding in the background a lot of places. <laughs> Where's Pardon? So uh, as as the procession goes by, you hear gasping as they as the crowd sees Karini's boots uh, backwards in the stirrups, as we were talking about before. Um, and then we see uh, people throwing fruit from all all directions to try to hit Loghain. Um And Loghain looks up and sees Matt and Rand in the balcony and just starts laughing like a madman. Um, what are we thinking? When, he when definitely recognized one or both of them. I, my theory is he sees the darkness in Matt at that point. Well, like he, he's seeing that they can channel, but yeah. I I didn't get the idea that the that actually happened. That seemed like a momentary thing that he saw. And then the next scene that we see, his head is down. I don't know that the laugh happened because you don't see any reaction from the crowd of him singling somebody out on a balcony and laughing at that person. That would get a reaction from Interesting. the crowd. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it did seem to be from Matt's point of view. <laughs> you know, you could see Rand looking over at him, but I don't know if he was noticing that as well. Yeah, I just think Matt saw that. Yeah. Started the madness. Mm, no, the madness Possibly. has been here. So Matt, uh, after he sees that, or does he, um, turns to Rand and just says, look, let's make a deal just promise me we're not going to let that happen to each other. And, and I think we all understand the unspoken promise that that's happening there. Yes. And it shows that Matt is scared of this happening. Him and Rand both are just terrified of what the possibilities are if it does start to show itself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they've been pointed out as potential, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> Potential victims of the same, uh, the same madness. So moving on, uh, we go back into the White Tower, uh, where we're in the warders' quarters with uh, Stepan, Lan, Ivan, and Maxim. Um, and they're talking, and someone says, uh, Leandrin got hit with a radish, and that made the whole procession worthwhile. <laughs> DW, you have something. Well, I, so I, this is just where I put it in my notes and I don't think there's necessarily a scene to associate this with it, but so if the white cloaks are hunting the Aes Sedai, uh -huh. is there anything that's keeping them from like trying to take this tower 
to kill all like is it war level or are they still trying to to be quiet about the fact that they're going after the Aes Sedai there there seems to be more to that whole connection of why they're hunting the Aes Sedai and whether or not that's a known thing that the White Cloaks are doing it other than to the Aes Sedai those are good questions Hmm. I almost got the impression that only the questioners were doing that part of the the white cloaks. Yeah, but if you're thing. escorting the questioner around, you're part of their Oh, their true. Yeah. Task. yeah. <laughs> but they were away from the entire white cloak camp, it seemed like, when they actually burned the uh, ice die at the stake and all that. And I, I suppose that he's probably shown his ring collection to everyone around, so... It but doesn't exactly it's, keep it. It's in. also possible it might be on the DL with the entire organization. I think they know. Like, as someone who grew up in the church, like, that's, I get a very strong, like, focus on the family vibe from them. Like, I do. <laughs> Where, like, they're not going to say that the Jan 6 set are, you know, doing the right thing. But they're going to wink, wink, nudge, nudge it. And... If they do something like very untoward, like burning um, Aes Sedai on the stake, um, they're going to justify it in the prettiest terms they can manage. Um, yeah, I'll yeah. circle back to this point later as we go on because I have I have a note about that. But uh, yes, nice. copy that. Okay, so back to uh, the warders' quarters. Uh, as, as I was saying, uh, somebody was saying Leandrin got hit with a radish, and that made the whole procession worthwhile, which gets a big chuckle from everyone. Um, and then Stepan kind of starts laying out his backstory for us. He talks about uh, his his father died, and and he kind of started going around to the bars and just getting drunk and getting drunk and fighting the weakest guy in the bar, and then deciding that wasn't any fun, so he'd get and get drunk and start fighting the strongest guy in the bar and decided that was more fun and eventually he ran into Karini in a bar who bought him a drink and eventually he found out that Karini was a was going to become an Aes Sedai and she chose him to be his warder and and that kind of changed his entire life David go ahead yeah I thought this was really cool and in the world that we live in where there's so much problems with self-worth that this was just a high level self-worth speech of yeah i was in this bad spot i didn't think very high of myself and i had this person come and tell me that i was worthwhile and that made it so that i could be worthy of her which is what he yeah. says exactly yeah he, yeah he said he had to be worthy of her and and you could see the pride in his eyes when he when he said that and and another thing about that little speech he gave that i love is he said uh Karini asked to, asked him to be her warder, and he said, "You could have anybody else. Why me?" And she just rolled her eyes at him. Like, that's the kind of response you give somebody that you 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 know you share a bond with already, whether or not that warder bond is in place. You don't just roll your eyes at at somebody that you ask that question to. You yeah. roll your eyes at that person that is there with you all the time. I get the feeling there were several more bar visits between the two of them before. She requested it of him. Oh, oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, so Yvonne uh, comes out with his own sob story, saying his his dad died when he was very young as well, and he said that the warders are the only family I have, and all of the warders kind of look around. You get really get like that that kind of like military brotherhood. Just you know, they they've got each other's backs, and and if they don't have their own families, but they're a family to each other, kind of feel you know. 
All right, sort of get that Richard Gere and Officer and Gentleman vibe. I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> so uh, Stepan, you know, points out that Yvonne and Maxime are lucky to have each other as well, and points out that if Alana had her way, they'd have ten more brothers to join them. <laughs> <laughs> Alana seems like a collector, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's a that's a good way to put it. Um. And Lan says, you know, with time there will be another, and Steppen pretty much just tells Lan to get bent. Um, we 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 see Steppen be not kind for the first time here, and and you can see that it's coming from a from a place of deep pain. Well, it's kind of the speaking for every single person that's told their friend after being told there are other fish in the sea of not now. Yeah, yeah let me be sad. <laughs> not now. Now's not good, too soon. Too soon. Uh, so then we have a, a, a nice little ceremony where uh, Stepan puts Karini's ring into a, a crucible. Uh, where uh, is the stone? That is a very good question that I, I don't have an answer I, to. I, I, I noticed that as it. soon as he took, uh, getting ready for that ceremony, when he took took it out of his, uh, his shirt, the stone was gone. Yeah. Well, go? stones don't melt even in crucibles, so I, I, <laughs> right. I think they probably are smart enough to just remove the stones before putting them in the crucible. Yeah, but what are they doing with it in the meantime? Well, here's the question I have, and I think Rar can answer this. Uh, the circle that was the crucible, is that in the books, or was that a design element they added for the show? Uh, there's not even a crucible Yet in another the books, circle. so the, it's complete I, design. And I thought it was amazing, because oh, it's like this whole metaphor yep. for their spirituality right you're you're returning this gold ring to the crucible and presumably if they have to make another ring they're going to pull gold out of that same crucible to to cast that new ring it's it's great so so it's like the Aes Sedai rings are the same Aes Sedai rings going back to Uh, the beginning of the Aes Sedai kind of thing and it really puts like a exclamation point on how important these rings are to them and their spirituality And then later, when we see the rings being the captured collection. and held up as a collection, it's like, wow, there's a big thing behind not returning these rings to the White Tower and yeah. and giving them yeah. their new life inside this crucible. So it was really cool and very interesting that it's not in the book. Like The showrunners have all of this stuff on the nose. They're doing really good at getting the design elements, even additions. Yeah. Very much so. Um, as as we've alluded to many times, Robert Jordan was very wordy in his descriptions, which you know didn't leave a lot to the imagination and and let you really see what he was talking about in the books. But in the show, we don't have time for those descriptions and and da 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 of everything. So they're trying to figure out how to tell us all of these things in the shortest time possible and do it. You know, show not tell, and they're doing a fantastic job of it. Like. Every change that they've made from the book so far, I have been like, yeah, I, I get why you did that. It shortcuts telling that story and it 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 makes it make sense to to a television audience. So yeah. And if they need to, they do an animated mini series. <laughs> <laughs> Which by the way, I found out you can access on certain other platforms besides the PC if you go into X-ray. Oh. I got it on my phone and my Amazon stick as well. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I do believe I heard that before that uh, you can do it on mobile and you can do it on Fire Stick. But not Roku. Not on Roku, no. Um, there there was one other thing from that. I believe it was from that scene. The quote I wrote down was, uh, I think it was Moraine telling Steppen or 
I can't remember who, but uh, I promise you the pain will never go away. Well, that, that was naive later. Yeah, that, that's naive oh, that in our naive. next next scene. Next yes. scene. Okay, sorry, I didn't uh, put which scene it was in, but yeah, that 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 quote has stuck with me. I mean, that's yeah. The the end of this scene, uh, we have Lan goes to be with Moraine and just kind of crouches at her feet and holds her hand and and is obviously very sad, thinking about the idea of her possibly dying as well. Any thoughts on that scene at all? Or? Well, we notice she feels it from him because she basically has the same conversation with uh, yeah. her friend later, Alana. And Alana has to reassure her as well. Like, no, yeah. you're going to be with us for a while longer. We jump to the White Cloak camp. Uh, and this scene, I I, I felt very... I like to speak for everyone when I say ick. Yeah. Huh. I, yes. I felt incredibly uncomfortable and wanted to take oh, a shower after watching yes, this scene. Yes, absolutely. And, and I want to really give it to the the showrunners because they could have done this scene in a very graphic way and they did not and it still got across the the feeling of yeah the dehumanization and the feeling of violation without being incredibly graphic yeah and we, when we went into yeah. this scene i'm like oh no are they are they really gonna do that they're really gonna come up with a rape scene and by the time it was over with it was like oh thank god they didn't do it that way but man, I was uncomfortable the whole time. Right. Yeah, and there was. And they removed her braid. Oh, that made me I angry. I didn't notice oh, that. That wow. was yeah. They did. They were they combing it out very roughly. Yeah, I, I was wondering who was going to pick up on that because yeah. yeah, when when I saw them combing out her braid, I I got very very upset. Yes. Yeah, like it just like the sexual assault that felt very like cultural erasure. Like oh okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, these are people like who ha clearly have zero respect for mm -hmm. difference and the value like that has like just inherently um, to the point where they will forcibly remove it. And like I, there were there were feelings of rage. Yeah. When yeah. we saw that, too, when when they were going up against uh, the people of the leaf, they actually said, Oh, this is gonna be the people of the light versus the way of the leaf. Like it's their way or the highway, no other ways. Right. Yeah, the very very straight up fascist. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So uh after we, we sit through that uncomfortable scene of Egwene getting scrubbed down and, and tied to a chair, uh we see Eamon Valda and this time he's eating a suckling pig. Uh, so what are we learning about Valda already? He ain't a vegetarian. <laughs> he he definitely, like, one of the things I've noted is is I've got a lot of friends who are vegetarian. I respect them for their choice. I have not chosen that path. But I have admitted that I probably couldn't eat something if it looked like it did in life. I can't eat a suckling pig. If a hamburger doesn't look like a cow, I'm able to, my brain can not recognize in that moment that I'm eating a cow. And he really likes to know what he's eating. It's just true. He likes to be off to, on it. It yeah. needs to be that is dead. I'm glad I killed it, and now I'm going to eat it. He he won't anything eat anything that doesn't have a face on it. Exactly. <laughs> the the thing that I really noticed there is uh, he's always eating something that that many people kind of deem as a little bit uh, a little bit risque, like 
you know, not acceptable in a lot of cultures, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I'm expecting to, to see him eat goose liver pate next, you know, it, it's oh, probably not as acceptable and also a bit on the probably more, uh, pricier side. Yeah. Yeah. The these are, these are meals that are gourmet. prepared with a lot of effort. And he's yes. doing them out in camps out in the woods. You know, uh, well, where's he, where's he getting a suckling pig from? They're out in the woods, you know, <laughs> Just raiding them from farms, I guess. I yeah, I, I was going to say, it, it probably sucks to be a farmer when the, the white cloaks are going past. Mm-hmm. It sucks to be anybody when the white cloaks are going past. <laughs> that, that's a pretty much very valid point, yes. Yeah, um, it's, it's just, again, another piece, like the very fancy meal stuff fits into um, not like depictions of Nazis in World War II movies. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. there's a, so much of the, of the symbology is really similar and like the haircuts really showed up. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely no subtlety, which I really appreciate. Well, and he yeah. gets really into misogyny later when he's mm-hmm. talking to Egwene and he very specifically calls out the Aes Sedai for attempting to be gods among men specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I caught that too. <laughs> yeah, your agenda's a little transparent there, dude. Yes. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> Poor Samaria. I feel I, so bad for you. It, I just, there were a lot of sexuality and gender feels that came through like each and every moment in this episode with the white cloaks. And I just, like, I think it's not just, you know, I said I using the power that's a problem. I think you hit it right on the head when you said it's women who get to use it. And, you know, Leandrin says that, you know, men don't do well when a little girl has even a spark of power that they don't, you know, that, you know, speaks to greatness that will outshine them, outdo them. And this is that in real time, like this is what happens when men leave the proverbial backwater village and get the means to, you know, wage of war wage battles against those little girls who grew up to be Leandrins and Moraines and Nynaeves. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, he, like he gets off on eating suckling pigs because, you know, that is something cute. That is something defenseless. That's something he can easily prey on. And, you know, that's something small. And now he can move on to something bigger that poses, you know, a challenge, but a challenge, you know, where he could win it. And, you know, he can make other people afraid of him. Like the challenge is the point. The chase is the point. Beating up the smallest guys well, in the I bar. I hadn't even made the connection about the fact that the food was all defenseless yeah. too. That's a very, very. It's interesting. You point. brought up that note about Leandrin because I even wrote down in my notes here. Wait, what? Sympathy for Leandrin? What's that? Oh, I know. It's like, oh gosh, <laughs> we might be buddies a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, getting back to our, our recap, um, after Valda is eating the suckling pig and, and he's talking to Egwene and he has Perrin dragged in and strapped uh, to another stand. Um, and Valda is saying, the light brought you to me for a purpose. I've seen you twice now. There's a reason. And Egwene shows some backbone and, and pretty much, you know, tells him where to stick it. And uh, so he starts torturing Perrin. And uh, we see Perrin's eyes go golden. What are we thinking right now? It's like, oh, there it goes. 
Well, my first thought in this moment, I hadn't made the connection that anybody might have thought him to be her warder. Yeah. That was an interesting aspect. That was something I noticed too, especially after the next scene. I'm like, this is something he does normally between the warder and the Aes Sedai. Right. He plays this game of, you're going to protect this person, and once you do, I'm going to smack you for it. Right, yeah. I mean that that's he's looking at everything through those eyes to die lenses. He you know? he's decided well, because with the warder, the cutting on the warder will cut on the eyes to die as well. Mm-hmm. Right. You're getting both. But it's actually the power of friendship that they have. Their bond is not the bond of an Aes Sedai and a warrior. Their bond is the power of two people who have grown up together, know each other. There's it's based in love. It's not based on this mystical bond. It's straight up love. Right. So Valda at this point uh, pretty much tells her uh, channel and I'll kill you. If you don't channel, I'll kill him. Um, it, because got... as with any, as with any good witch trial, he, he's already, he knows that they, she's guilty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just <laughs> a matter of having her confess so that then she can be executed appropriately. I got That's that whether, whether or not they can build a bridge out of her. Yeah. Yes. Does she weigh um, as much as a duck? <laughs> <laughs> I'll use the migration. Well, she scales. looks like a witch, but they dressed her as one. Exactly. Uh, so we move on to our next scene. We're in the warders' quarters with uh, Nynaeve and Steppen. Uh, Steppen shows up at Nynaeve's door, and he's kind of drunk, and he asks for more uh, goat's tongue tea to help him sleep. Um, and they talk about grief for a minute, and... Uh, this is this is something that somebody brought up a little earlier. Uh, yep. um, I promise you, the pain will never go away. Yeah, yeah. she has known loss, obviously. Yes. Yes. Um, so then uh, Nynaeve decides to go out on a little walkabout um, and runs into Leandrin, uh, where they start discussing warders and men. Um, and this is where uh, we kind of get a. a view inside Leandrin's worldview a little more. Um, Nynaeve claims that, that Leandrin hates men and Leandrin kind of turns it around. Like it's, it's not men that hate me. It's more, or it's not me that hates men. It's more uh, men that hate me or us as it were. Uh, did anybody else pick up on, on how she was working that? Mm-hmm. 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 And like I said before it, Oh, that's sympathy for Leandrin. I didn't yeah. expect yeah. that. Yeah, it, being a book reader, feeling a little sympathy for Leandrin, trust me, you have no idea how shocking <laughs> that is. <laughs> so compliments to the actress. Uh, very yeah. much so. Oh, yeah, she does, she does a great job. For the, Also compliments to the actress. Uh, that's Kate, Kate Fleetwood, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, she tells Nynaeve, you can go that way to get to the gardens. And uh, there's some stuff in bloom. And the persimmons are really good. What's the other way? What's through uh, that other door that she's trying to distract her from? I, th- I think it's the other way around. I think it's her trying to send her toward where the other sisters are. Because remember, Moraine is trying to keep her away from all the sisters. That's true. That's true. She's sending her a garden where she might run into Get more. Get into That's the red true. common house. So so two <laughs> things about this, this scene. Uh, one, I never want to eat another persimmon for as long as I live. Thanks for the foul persimmon. <laughs> yeah. um, and two, it just struck me earlier today, um, Leandrin is trying to send her to go find the fruit of a tree 
in a place known for knowledge. Ooh, Ooh. That is I, not I wonder where that comes from. Ooh, all my church yes. bills were oriented elsewhere in this episode. <laughs> yeah. That that one just struck me, and and I don't know if that's what they were intending there, but I I feel like there's definitely a, a something to to possibly be argued there. Hmm. And not the first Christian reference either in this nope. show. No, not by a long shot. No. Well, that's not necessarily Christian. That's Judeo-Christian. It's, but, yeah. You know. True. Uh, so jumping back into our timeline, uh, we're back at the inn with uh, Rand and Matt, and Loyal brings uh, Nynaeve to visit Rand and Matt. Uh, he says, I, I, I was able to get to the White Tower because Ogier are allowed on tower grounds, and I found the Egwene that you were looking for because <laughs> she has a braid, much like the braids of the Two Rivers people, so this must be your Egwene. I found it so Close funny enough. that he mistaked... It was sweet. Nynaeve for or for Egwene. And he right. was so sure of himself, but it was completely wrong. He he and, was wrong in the in the right direction. Yes. It worked out. He was he was, cor- <laughs> he was correctly incorrect. Wrong in the right direction. I like that. <laughs> Better than in Brent drinking some other random two rivers woman who happened to be. <laughs> Excuse me, who are you? Here she is. I don't even know who this person is. I found this braid. It must be your girl. <laughs> So uh, as soon as the, as uh, Nynaeve walks in, she sees Matt, and she immediately goes into mega healer mode, um, and and Matt kind of snaps at her, and we have not seen Matt snap at his friends no. to this point, um, and and she takes it in course and just says, "I think he's sick," but uh, David, you got something? Yeah, and I found it interesting that she asked to see his tongue, and that was kind of what the darkness focused on when, the last time when he was throwing it up, is that tongue and mouth area. Mm-hmm. Almost almost like this is something she's seen before, and she was looking for something specific. Uh, so I was wondering if maybe that this, uh, I don't know, darkness overcoming them and them eating this darkness is something that the Two Rivers has seen before. And that that was something passed down to the wisdoms there. Oh, or something the other wisdom had seen before. Yeah, it, it doesn't really matter where the information came from. It seems like this is something that she's seen before and also knows how to treat. DW, you have something. I actually wasn't certain in that moment whether he was angry that she was reaching for him or if he was trying to protect her and mm-hmm. didn't want what is in him oh. to get at her. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thought as well. I like yeah. that. Like that. So uh, Rand and Nynaeve uh, take a step outside, and and Rand tells Nynaeve what uh, he and Tom suspect, which is that Matt can channel, and he's not sure that they should trust taking Matt to the Aes Sedai at this point because he saw what they did to Loghain. Um, and uh, Nynaeve, um, she she's two rivers strong, and she she says, you know, I'm not going to let anything happen to you boys. I'm I'm here with you, and. And then she tells a little bit of a story about Two River Strength and tells about uh, Egwene when she was younger and she had breakbone fever. And breakbone fever usually kills anyone who has it or, or cripples them for life because it actually causes their bones to break because their muscles pull against them so hard. And she talked about how Egwene just went through it all night and the fever broke in the morning and she never even made a peep. And that's, that's the true Two River Strength. I really, really liked that story. I, I thought it was 
I mean, they've, they've been littering these stories throughout the, the season to show you how much these people know each other and how well they care for each other and how strong these people are at their core. But I'm never going to get tired of hearing them. Yeah. The one thing I thought about that was they've known each other all their lives. They're the same age. They grew up at the same town. How did how did Rand not know this about Egwene? I mean, you can say that Rand lives on a sheep farm up the quarry road that's a little outside of town, and he's not, you know, necessarily in town every day. He, he, that's true. Yeah. You know. And they may have also, wisdom, you may not patient, want confidentiality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Something along those lines. I was going to say, you may not want, you know, the, the town to know that your daughter survived this horrific disease. I mean, there's still the concept of whether or not that's uh, hereditary or what have you. The showing a weakness of a family may be something they want to hide, or a strength for that matter. True, yeah, true. Yeah. Are they going to take my child away to the White Tower and I never see them again? Right. Now yeah, there you go. So moving on with our timeline, uh, we're back in the White Cloak camp. I hate when I have to say we're back in the White Cloak camp. No doubt. Um, so uh, we get a scene where Perrin finally confesses what happened with Layla to, to Egwene. Just as emotional as I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Man, that was, oh, I felt for him. Yeah. I don't remember who it was saying, who was saying that it was going to be him yelling it at somebody, but they pretty much nailed that right on the head. Yeah. It was me. I kind of, I I saw it coming. And as soon as this scene started, I'm like, Oh, Oh, here it is. Here's that scene. I knew was coming. Yeah. Um, and, and Egwene kind of looks at Perrin. She's like, you, you deserve another chance. You know, that same love that we've seen the whole time. We've seen, uh, Valda, he comes back and he says, well, no decision, still a decision. So he starts torturing Perrin again, at which point Egwene decides to do what she can to save Perrin and attempts to channel to not very great effect. It was a nice diversion, though, it turns out. It was a nice diversion, because while he thought that that was her attack, she was able to burn through Perrin's ropes. Was it her or him? See, I thought it was him. I I thought he burned through his own ropes. I can't tell. I watched it twice, and I looked very specifically the second time, and it's like... (laughs) Uh I'll also put forward, did anyone catch that during the whole scene of him being cut on... The howling was yes. always yes. 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 So That's why yes. I assumed it was him. Because so, yeah. I, was like, I also oh. wondered there, now that he's kind of lifted the burden of his grief, does that make him able to channel whatever power it is he has better than he did before? It could very well be. I, I really caught that. Uh, you know, I, re- I really thought that it was Egwene who was doing that because her thing has been fire all along. It's kind of been her channeling, her channeling power. Uh, he's been shown, you know, he, he knows how to let the dogs out. Hoo, hoo, hoo. <laughs> and I started singing that when I, I heard not those have howls. Laughed at that. Oh, <laughs> Who let the dogs out? It's, yes, no. this is happening. <laughs> uh, so uh, Perrin gets released by whatever means he, he becomes released. And uh, we see the look of absolute fear in, in Valda's eyes as he says, what that. are you? I, I think everybody on the planet enjoyed that. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, but I feel like, Samaria, the, the visceral feeling you were having before, I'm hoping this was some you know, relief to that feeling that you were having to go through from the previous scene. Oh, gosh, yes. I, uh, you know, he goes, there's nothing, you know, about, you know, this, the power that can come from the light. And I was like, okay, I know where I've heard that before. Um, 
that was also <laughs> part of like my gender and sexuality, like queer feels. Um, but like this guy takes too much pleasure in harming other people. Mm-hmm. And like, I was just like, I, I've met too many people, you know, who specifically seek out, you know, religion, because this is what this reminds me of the most religion, like not because they really believe in it, which he may or may not. I think that's irrelevant, but because it gives them a way to wreak havoc and, you know, have power over people that they may not otherwise be able to do. And just to have that, you know, flipped and reversed on him, I was like, yes, thank you. Because that is something I don't get to see in real life, you know, but once in a blue moon. So even in fiction, you know, I'll take it. Yeah, using religion as a justification for the bullying, that, that that's hitting it hitting it on the mark there it was interesting that he's so calm and collected when a woman is channeling magic or doing something different in front of him but the second that it becomes a man doing something powerful and even magical like he turns into a little baby scared out of his mind that is true very much so (laughs) (laughs) typical indeed yeah Part, part of it is he's had his assumptions thrown on the head, right? Like magic is a thing that women do and, and women are evil and magic is evil, but he's a man and he's doing magic and I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. And I'm sure he's heard the stories of the, 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 the last dragon. So he knows that, oh, a man doing magic, it's about to get bad. Yep. So uh, one question I have to ask here, uh, what do you guys think about Perrin's eyes turning gold? Uh, I loved it. I th- the, it matches the first the thing. Yes. The, then the first thing I thought of, I thought of American Werewolf in London. I'm like, is he going to mm. become a wolf? Is he going to That's like what I thought too. Transform? I was wondering if we were going to have full transformation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like at this point I was like, okay, so wolves are related to him, but now I'm like, Oh, is he a wolf? Not maybe in the literal sense. I, no, but like, okay. Yeah, All right. It's... You're spiritually in tune with wolves in some very important way, and it's starting to manifest physically. So or I'm perhaps excited. A, a trollic that went right instead of wrong. <laughs> <laughs> very slow transformation. I'm telling you, wolf the trollic. wolf licked his leg. We knew at that moment. Yeah, I'm sure his leg was fine right now. Oh, Probably wow. looks a lot better than his back, but. So uh, at this point, the, the, the good boys all show up. The, the wolves come through camp and um, kind of take care of the white cloaks as, as Perrin and Egwene are running away. And I have to say right now that this scene was the one scene that I, I just, my suspension of disbelief could not break through. Those, those wolves were entirely too happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I know it's difficult to work with animals and, and, but, uh, you know, when, when you see the, the wolves running through with their tails wagging, you, you don't really feel a whole lot of fear. No, no. They really enjoy destroying <laughs> yes. such misogynism. Like it really, it's, it's a visceral experience for the wolves. They know. They're SJWs. They're social justice wolves. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, oh, I, I so did I'd... find it interesting on the second time around that, we don't see, um, yet yeah, Valda die. No, and, and I don't no, think he got he's stabbed going to. He straight got in, the stabbed in the shoulder. He's going to be around for a while. We yeah. don't see the wolves eating on him. So unfortunately, we don't get his big, nasty, happy death scene. 
but I think we'll see him a little bit later. Yeah, oh yeah, don't He's die on camera. Back. You're alive. That's the rule. Yeah, yeah that, that says to me that um, that our heroes there aren't voracious readers, because they, if they were, they would know that they needed to finish him <laughs> off. Right? Yeah. Double tap. Double tap. <laughs> exactly. I'd get two wolves on that guy. They got cardio. Because it was Egwene who stabbed him, and I just don't think yep. she has it in her to do the kill shot, and that's why he got it in the shoulder. But Perrin probably, but Perrin would. Yeah. And as I said, if they were readers, they would know that they needed to. No matter Actually, how Perrin would have done it about it a month and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I'm not sure Perrin would do it right now. Mm. Perrin taking someone's life, I think, would mess him up. Mm, that's true. For a good cause, yeah. But I think he's a convert at this point to the way of belief, and and that's what we're going to see going forward. But. I think so too. He was arguing too much against it, and I was like, "Oh, you like it? You're mm-hmm. <laughs> you do it." Please give me a reason why I shouldn't go this way. <laughs> give me a reason right now why I shouldn't follow this. So, jumping back into our timeline, uh, we're back at the White Tower. We just have a little, quick little scene where uh, Leandrin and Ma- Maureen run into each other. Um, Leandrin asks her about Nynaeve and pretty much says, uh, you're not going to be around. I'm going to steal her out from under your nose and turn her into a red to which Maureen just replies. Uh, yeah, she likes dudes. You're, you're good luck. <laughs> uh, any thoughts about uh, what was shared in that scene? No, that was, I think that that was a, a great, a little, a nice little way of showing that Maureen really doesn't have any, you know, she doesn't think that, she would lose Nynaeve to the Reds. She she's very yeah. confident in it, and that could be the traditional, you know, you know, the the, the overconfidence that we've been seeing. The I, I think the thought there might have just been she hates me. She's gonna hate you like five times as well. <laughs> oh, that too. You know? <laughs> yeah, Not that so much she read. likes dudes. It's like she thinks you yeah. are really a terrible person. She hates all of us. <laughs> you especially. <laughs> it was also a great callback to the earlier part where Leandrin's trying to kind of spin the no we don't hate guys that's not the way it is but then moraine throws it back in her face and you guys hate men straight up no qualms about it and then also in the previous episode when uh she was talking to lan about leandrin and said she's a snake Mm -hmm. like she 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 said her she formed her opinion right there and um I'm sure Lan told Moraine that, so Moraine would know. Yeah, she's uh-huh. a snake trying to guide her to the garden and the knowledge. Oh! Eat the apple. I mean, nice catch. Yeah, as soon as you said this, it just reminded me of the snake thing. I'm like, oh. Uh, so jumping back to our timeline, uh, we're back in the warder's quarters now, and we're with uh, Lan and Steppen. And we see Steppen lighting some incense in front of some carvings, uh, and that's when Lan says, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen anybody try to ward off the, the Forsaken in a while. Um, which one are you trying to ward off? And he says, uh, Ishamael, the father of lies. David, you have something? Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting look into kind of the history of what their religion or basis for religion looks like, mm-hmm. uh, where you you have this obvious multi-god kind of setup where each one has their own purpose or their own situation like you see with the uh, roman or uh, greek gods 
And now it's kind of clear that they've kind of moved on past that to either a singular God or no God, or just kind of the light as a creator in general, which is interesting to me because that's kind of how our world has been. Most of the multi-God religions we've seen out there have kind of transitioned to a singular God in most places. DW. Well, I also noticed like the name that he mentioned, Deshamael. Didn't we hear that name already? We did. We did. We heard that name from, was it Bree? The, in the dark in Green Spring, yes. Yes. Yeah. She, she made the comment that that's the name of the person who took the uh, dragon to the Dark One. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I caught that too. I also caught one of those carvings. Looked very Wookiee-ish. Did you catch that? Like the third to last one had a had a serious Wookiee vibe to it. I was huh. I, that could I have been a nice little a nice little Easter egg <laughs> from the designers there. It's like eh, throw a little Star Wars in there. So uh anything else you y'all picked up about the Forsaken in that scene or Yeah, I read the uh the the the, the trivia again, the X ray, mm-hmm. uh about sort of the history of the Forsaken. Uh you know, just the the ones that have been rejected by uh, by polite society since they were they caused the you know they they contributed to the breaking or they were possible you know possibly former breakers of of the world. Um, there there there's you know it, it's it's interesting that they would have these little icons. Uh, normally when you have, you know, a religious icon, you're praying to them. This, you're praying against these. It's like these specific, you know, fuck these particular gods in, in you know, sp- in, in general there, but uh, not really gods, but, you know, the spirits that need to stay away. Almost like anti-patron saints, as it were. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, the, the, the patron demons, I guess, that you want to, you're sure you want to ward away. I mean, that would be like having, you know, little icons of the seven deadly sins and you're smudge sticking the hell out of them to keep, you know, lust and gluttony and pride and envy away. Well, and uh, Land mentions that they were given eternal life as part of this deal with the Dark One. And it kind of insinuated that they were sealed away, but they're still alive. So I'm wondering if we're kind of going to get a dynamic of uh, just like the Seven Kings in the Lord of the Rings where they actually come back and start fighting for the dark side. Or the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. That too, yeah. Interesting thoughts all around that I'm not going to say anything about. Yay, that means we're completely on the wrong track. Or completely on the right track, you don't know. No, we're on the wrong track, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) I know I am. Uh, so then we jump over to Moraine's quarters, uh, where Moraine and Alana are talking. Um, Moraine is saying, uh, do you think Stepan will accept your offer? And she says, I don't know. Warder, dr- deep. Warder grief is very, very deep. Um, I think the offer they're, uh, they're insinuating here is to make Stepan another of Alana's warders. And Moraine says, uh, I read there's a way to release the bond. And Lana said, uh, no, don't do that. Lan is strong and you have nothing to worry about. You're not going anywhere. You don't need to worry about Lan the way we're worrying about Stepan. So that one, that kind of confused me a little bit because uh, is the way to release the bond 
you know, I, that's, that's what I wasn't quite sure about. You know, I think of the way to release the bond, I think of that as death, death of the warder. Uh, but how does Lan and Moraine fall into that? Um, I think what's going on here is Moraine, they're, they're all witnessing this extreme grief on Stefan's part and they, they all understand where it's coming from. And I think Moraine probably also because she's feeling the grief through Lan is thinking, I cannot put Lan through this. If this path that I'm on, I'm probably going to die at some point because, you know, you don't get on a path like this and not die. Um, and I don't want to put Lan through that because I have too much respect for what Lan has done already. I think that's what that whole. That, yeah, that was, was my I got that it was a release of the bond that would have them both alive but that feeling of sharing pain yeah. and everything like that would be dissolved. So that, so that when I inevitably end up having to die because of this quest I'm on, Lan will not have to go through that, that level of grief, I yep. think is what she's yeah, I got that alluding too. to there. <laughs> okay. It kind of felt a little bit like I need to break up with him first because <laughs> otherwise it's going to hurt him later. And I got to save him later. by breaking up with him. Yeah. I found it interesting and cool in this scene that uh, Alana is played by an actor clearly of Indian descent and her clothing kind of reflects that as well. But then also she's in this bedroom with Moraine with bare feet and Moraine's got her boots on. So it's like, they are really doing a great job at showing cultural connections within the show, both from the actor to their dress, to their mannerisms and not oh, absolutely not trying to mix and match or, impart have everybody speak with the same english accent yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah they're not trying to impart a single mix on the entire uh cast as a whole you're a good yeah. one because i saw those boots on the bed and i was like get your nasty boots, <laughs> boots. <laughs> i didn't even think that i didn't think that hard about it i really did not you've been walking through a street that has horses in it come on I, my, my read on that is that marina spent so long like camping and out in the wilderness that she just forgets That's about true. things. The like, bed isn't a bed to her. It's just a thing. Yeah. Uh, so their discussion comes around to uh, the Amerlin who's on her way back to the hall because um, she wants answers about Loghain and what happened. Um, and Alana says, uh, you're strong and people are scared. Uh, you're one of the few people who could challenge the Amerlin. Uh, but Leandrin is also gaining strength. Um, so you might want to watch out because you have two powerful enemies. I think uh, implying the 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 Amerlin and Leandrin is the two powerful enemies there. Yeah, and the, the strength that the difference in the strength there. I think Leandrin's strength is a little more you know political and social, where right. it seems like Moraine has more of the one power strength. Makes me wonder if Moraine is one of the three seated for the Blue Aja, if she's that strong and connected into the political structure but then also she spends so much time away from the tower it's like oh, that's a weird dynamic there yeah that'd be like a senator from texas going to mexico <laughs> and there's a crisis going on at home so moving on <laughs> so to a certain extent that could also be reflective of like so thinking back to like roman empire roman empire there was a period where like in in the pre, the pre-emperor bits, the, well, actually in the early parts of the empire, where you would want people that are very powerful, you encourage them to go away. You give them missions that send them away from the capital because that way they can't take over. 
and we haven't met uh, the Amerlin seat yet, but presumably... Uh, so, so your idea is maybe the Amerlin is sending Moiraine out on these long missions so that she can't consolidate power at home. Yeah. It's coming up yeah. on the but, middle of March. I think you should take a vacation there, Moraine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like what is the like what is the internal politics of the what are the practical effects? Like, because we know that there is the ambulance seat is in charge. Is she elected? Like, can she be impeached? Could she be fired? Oh, you know, do um is there a tradition of um, promotion through assassination? Mm-hmm. Are there term limits even? Yeah. yeah. All questions that you'll eventually find out. Okay. Um, So the end of this scene, (laughs) the end of this scene, we see Moraine open a a small door above her fireplace uh, and just look at a painting that's behind the little door. Um, Did anybody catch what that was or get any meaning out of it? I couldn't tell. It looked like a woman looking out of a window. But we're looking at it from behind. So you're looking at a person. You're you're looking through the painting and a person looking out of a... Yeah. Yeah. Except you're only seeing the back. And it's not next to a window as far as we can tell. It's on a wall. Right. So I mean, obviously, but... What I'm seeing in in that is you open a door and look through the door and you see another doorway inside that you look through and you see a person crouching in that doorway looking through to another doorway further beyond and looking out a window that's through that other door i'm the only thing i'm reading out of this is uh this is kind of setting up moraine's character you know somebody thinks that they're watching you but you're watching them from three steps further back kind of thing. who watches the watcher mm-hmm. yeah. exactly I can tell you that that, whatever that piece of art was had nothing to do with the books. So that was definitely something that they placed in there just for um, the show's artistic merit. It's it's interesting, though, that she would keep that hidden. It's interesting, but it also adds to the artistic merit of the piece, in, in my opinion. You know, and, and the meaning. The, the whole idea of, yeah, the whole idea of the piece is, you know, the hidden watcher watching the hidden watcher. How do you hide that? by putting it behind another door, you know, that yeah, nobody yeah. necessarily knows is a door. It was featured well enough that it has to have some level of meaning somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so then we go back to the warder's quarters. Um, Stepan is pouring land some tea and he talks about uh, Alana's offer of bonding. Um, he's like, I, I don't know if I can bond with Alana. I've never been with a man to which land replies two two men. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was tea. That seemed like booze. No, we find out later it was but, tea. Well, it was, yeah, but I think it was supposed to be booze. It's just that sleepy yeah. time tea was mixed in with it. So uh, Stepan asked Lan, uh, so what's up with Nynaeve? And Lan's like, oh, nothing. I don't know. And Stepan's like, look, she uh, st- splash damage healed all of us just trying to save your life. So uh, I think she might dig you, dude. To which Land just replies, well, that's a bad idea for her because people who like me don't, you know, that doesn't end well usually. Stepan says, well, you got to love or life is intolerable. And Land just says, well, I can tolerate a lot. He's about to find out how much. Yeah. Tells me he's resisting it. Like he feels it too, but he is resisting it hard. They like each other. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, but how does that impact the whole I, relationship? I've with been I think Lan's worried about that a lot. Yeah. 
So, so, so Mario, are you getting your shipping goggles on for this one? I I finally let them stay on. You know, I oh. picked it up and I was like, <laughs> no. And this time I was like, oh, it's kind of like how I was watching X Men for the first time. And I was like, Xavier and Magneto. I was like, no. And then you know, they were on that beach. And I was like, oh yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I understood why everybody else in the uh, in the theater was like, that's gay. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. Same thing here, where I was just yeah, in denial. Was. like, no, they're Thanks just friends. <laughs> no, they're just friends. I was like, oh no, they like each other. And you know, I've been thinking the last few weeks, like, hmm, how? What's that that dynamic like? Because you know, some I said I and their waters are clearly together, and then some aren't. And I don't think Moraine and Land have that relationship. I think it's a lot more platonic, just like extremely close. Um, so I don't know if Maureen's the jealous type, if waters like have some kind of code about having outside relationships, you know, how that works out. But I think clearly with land, that is a concern with him, regardless of what, you know, the social code is around this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just, I'm really curious about, you know, how he's going to handle it, how Maureen's going to handle it. I, I don't think she'd be bothered much, but obviously it's not just up to her. Well, and it, it kind of clearly states outright that anybody that joins with Alana is going to have to join into that relationship as well because land pretty much made makes that a certainty and so does uh step in so it's basically understood that that's kind of the relationship that's going to happen at least with Alana I, I guess also like because the water shares the bond with the um with the ice to die that means that they're going to experience that same feeling Right, so it, it may not be so much of a, a conscious choice, like a, a, an active choice, so much as you bond with an Aes Sedai, you're into whoever they're into. Yeah, if the love's if, already there's a positive there, feedback loop happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, moving on to our next scene, um, we, we see morning dawning over Tarvalon. Very beautiful shot of, of the sun coming up and down the street. And, uh, and that was the end of the episode. It was a great episode. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I get the feeling you had a, had some trouble. Can't with wait this to last see what part. happens next episode. Yeah, yeah. that was um, that. Yeah, the the first thought I had was first of all that headband ain't gonna help that hangover. Um, yeah. You know, he got up looking pretty rough and realizing what was actually in his in his cup there. Yeah, and yeah. he figured something was. Something was going down. I, I think I think we all figured something was very mm-hmm. wrong at that moment. There was an aspect when he was when he was looking at the paper, and I was like, "What's on the paper? What's on the paper?" And then, everybody, "Oh, that was the T." Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh. That, <laughs> it wasn't. It didn't clearly hit my head at first that people would keep tea leaves in those folded papers like that at times. It tells you that everything Stepan did that night was premeditated. Yes, he yes. he went to ninety for that tea, knowing what he was going to use it for. And I noticed yeah. after the fact that that scene was follow or followed, land telling Step and that he was going to stay with him for the night. Yeah, mm-hmm. like now he needed something that he could do with Step in so that he could sneak out. Well, I have to wonder if, to a certain extent, they also keep them away from blades mm-hmm. for this similar thing. Because yeah. notice he took one of lands, right? And so it's one of those things where, like, is there already a tradition? They know that this happens. Do they keep them away from anything they could hurt themselves with? And he needed that opportunity of land being asleep so he could grab that blade, mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think you're all on to, to very. You're, you're all very much on on the right course with that. I think. Yeah. Um, and that 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 hit hard. 
yeah, it was, it was very heavy, um, very heavy in a lot of ways. Uh, I, like I said at the beginning, I, I watched this episode four times. I watch all of the episodes four times in, in preparation for this. And I can tell you that I, the, the three times after the first viewing, I was dreading it. And all, all four times I cried. I, I could mm-hmm. not stop myself from crying, even if I wanted to. It was, and frankly, I think if anybody watches this episode without crying, there's probably some, something uh, wrong there. <laughs> Secretly a white cloak. <laughs> Yeah, I I knew the first time viewing. As soon as he walked in the room and he was kneeling there, I knew. Yeah, yeah. I knew what had happened. Yeah, yeah that, um, that was that was tough. That was definitely tough. So we move on to the the uh, funeral scene for Stepin, um, with everybody dressed in white, and uh, Lan takes on the grief for everybody. The tube and throat singing. Yeah. The, the throat singing was beautiful. That was great. Um, just and amazing. I thought Klingon funeral from this. Yeah. Somewhat similar. I can see that. Um, earlier you were talking about uh, um, pulling from the cultures of the actors. Um, and this is actually very reminiscent of a Korean death ritual. Um, and Daniel Henney, who plays Lan, is Korean himself. So the again, pulling from the the actual backgrounds of the actors for these things. And yeah, that scene, that scene just broke me. Yeah. It's a good nod. But yeah, uh, there is something really beautiful about using the actual backgrounds of, of the actors instead of creating this, you know, culture from whole cloth. uh, It, it, it it really helps to connect and, Oh my God, Daniel Henney did such an amazing job in that scene. Oh, Mr. Stoic just broke and yeah. it was amazing. Rips literally. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, and and you know, at Daniel Henney uh, uh I saw that he won the the best performance of the week from Entertainment Weekly or one of those mm-hmm. places and, well and deserved. yeah, he absolutely deserved it. I at the end of this episode I was like if they are not submitting this for all of the Emmys. Mhm. Um, because Peter Franzen, who played Steppen, deserves mm-hmm. an Emmy. Um, yes, Lan deserves an Emmy. Um, the the this episode just floored me. Yes, the the acting was so so good, so good. Um, Very much agreed. And I found it interesting that their funeral ritual involves white as opposed to black. Yeah, where yeah, that's something Steppen said earlier, where he hadn't worn white since his father's funeral. Yeah. Which wearing black for a funeral is a very Western tradition, whereas wearing white for a funeral is a much more of an Eastern tradition. Um, it it tends to be in most cultures you wear either white or black, but it's it's one or the other. Yeah, so that was that was a, a long, hard, deep episode. Uh, just to go a little lighter on it, um, when everyone was standing around with that low note going and they were thumping their chests. I got a real, you know, Matthew McConaughey and Wolf of Wall Street thing. It's like his parents summoning, summoning the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> that was an attempt at a joke. It, it was an attempt to bring some levity. I, I appreciate it. Um, I think we're all very sad at this point, but I'm, I'm going to turn it around a little bit right here. And uh, we're just going to stop talking about this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it's time to wrap yeah. things up anyway. Uh, this is possibly and our and uh, for a minute before we get into a wrap up, I want to talk about uh, us. 
because uh, we've been doing some amazing things. We uh, we're we're almost over two thousand total downloads, which for a first month podcast is insane. We we've got a lot of fans. A lot of fans are are uh, sending me uh, information, which I've been passing on to you guys a little bit. Um, some of the things that people shared, uh, um, uh, one of our listeners and his husband enjoyed listening to our podcast while they were setting up their Christmas tree. That is fantastic. How sweet. Yeah. I, I got that message and it just like, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a Christmas celebrating type person, but you know, it, it, it made me feel like the Grinch at the end of the Grinch at that moment. You know, my heart <laughs> grew several Two sizes bigger. So, so, you know, I'm loving the fact that people are, are listening, people are getting involved, people are, are wanting to talk to us. And if you want to send anything to uh, any questions for the panel, any questions for me, any, any just nice things that you want to say, uh, you can send that to watchpartywot at gmail.com. That's watchpartywot at gmail.com. Uh, send those in. I'll go through them. I'll share the ones that aren't full of spoilers with, with uh, the panel. Um, <laughs> oh, Mark, the secret keeper and the filter. Yes. We, we need protection. We need protection from you spoiler people. One more exciting thing. Um, I, I got some podcast analytics and, and uh, if anybody out there knows anything about podcast analytics, they're so full of bullshit. It's not even funny, <laughs> but one of the analytics that I, I, I wanted to bring up is uh, we are number one as far as TV reviews in Sweden. Sweet. Yes. Nice. We love so, you, Sweden. Sweden, Thank you. Sweden we love really you. That's really funny. That's really funny. Keep listening, Sweden. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, released an album a few years ago, and it charted in Sweden on the Roots charts, on the Roots Americana charts in Sweden. And I was able to text text him this weekend going, <laughs> I'm on the charts in Sweden, too. How you like me now? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say, I think there's probably like maybe 10 people in Sweden who listen to podcasts, like any podcasts. So the fact that we've got but like four people like listening us to best. us right. gave us the number one, but we, we they, thank th- you. those 10 we people like all. us. We thank you all. And I just happened to be making Swedish meatballs when I got that, when I got that text uh, <laughs> for a school function for my, for my, my kids. <laughs> it was fate. It was fate. All right. Well, that's all for our show today. Thank you, Sweden. Uh, we'd like to thank, as always, Michael and Jen out, out at the uh, Watch Party Secret Island headquarters. Uh, the, this show would not be possible without them. Also, huge thanks to uh, Jordan Rennells for his work with the audio engineering. We love you, Jordan. Yes, Jordan. Thanks, thank you. Jordan. And remember, Four Cats Boutique is his shop, so be sure to go check them out on Etsy. That's the number four, Cats with a K, Boutique, Four Cats Boutique. Uh, this has been a Watch Party Podcasting Empire production. Now, final word from our panel. Ow. <laughs> that was good.